Hello, and welcome to Fantastic Comic Fan, a short-form comic book podcast where my goal is to help you find that next fantastic read or discover an old favorite. I cover comics from the golden age to now, indies, and Kickstarter campaigns. You never know what I might cover, but you will know where to find fantastic comics to read at the end of each episode. It's Monday, September 26th, 2022, and this is episode 73 of the podcast. This week, I am celebrating the first anniversary of the podcast, and there are only two more episodes. This is the 75th episode, and my surprise guest that I am so pleased to get on the podcast is going to be a great episode. Now for this episode, once again, we are traveling back to 1972, and once again, we have Alan Stewart as the guest. Last spring, I approached Alan about being on the podcast. At first, Alan wasn't all that sure about coming on the podcast. He has a blog that he's been going on for a few years now, and you can hear about it later in the episode. We taped this particular segment a while back, and I meant to have it run long before now. Unfortunately, life responsibilities got in the way all summer, and I'm only now starting to get things back on track. Alan is a fantastic guest. And the type of guests I strive to bring on all the time. Alan knows his comics, and he brings a scholarly approach to what he talks about. He just doesn't give his opinion, and I appreciate all the work he puts in as a guest. This time around, we are covering July through September. There are links to Alan's other episodes, and I hope you check them out. 1972 had a lot of things happening. I have been surprised with how much happened during this year. While you're looking at the show notes, there is a link tree of the podcast social media accounts and all the platforms we can listen to the show. And if you like the show, please spread it on to other fans. I want the podcast to continue to grow and be a different way of covering and discovering comic books. Now, let's get on to today's show. Welcome, y'all, to the Fantastic Comic Fan Podcast. I am once again welcoming back Alan Stewart. And the last few segments with him, we've been covering comic books that came out in 1972. And there's a reason for that. So, Alan, why don't you tell them the reason why we cover 1972 lately? Well, I do a blog called Attack of the 50-Year-Old Comic Books. And the idea is that I am writing about comic books that came out 50 years ago that I bought new off the stands. I've been doing it since 2015, which was basically the 50th anniversary of when I started buying comic books that summer, the age of eight. So I've been doing it since 2015, and there's usually one post a week on Saturday and occasionally a second post on Wednesday. But at any rate, and I, I don't always have it like timed exactly to, you know, the day or even the week that a comic book came out 50 years ago, but it's always in the, in the same month. And I, I try to do them in the order of, of when they actually appeared on, on stands. So that's the idea. And that's why 1972 is, is the year we're, we're focusing on right now. Yeah, we've been doing this now for about two months. I initially approached you with the idea of coming on. You're like, I don't know about this. I'm going to have to think <laughs> about this. And you came on and we've done, like I said, I think three so far. And we right. covered the first six months of... 
1972, and we're getting ready to cover an area that you haven't covered on your uh, blog, Alan. How does that feel to be going ahead into uh, the rest of the year? Well, it's it's actually sort of like it, it's helping me prepare, you know, for for doing those blog posts, you know, as we get to those dates. I generally have it more or less planned out several months in ahead anyway, uh, not necessarily, you know, any writing or even much research done, but, but I sort of know like what I'm, I'm planning to do. So I'm, I, I tend to think in the, think ahead. I don't know if you actually, if I should say think ahead, it's more, I guess it's like thinking ahead towards the past, <laughs> gotcha. the slight, slightly more recent past, you know, 49 years and, and six months ago instead of 50 years ago or something. So this time around, we're starting off with July. We're going to cover pretty much the summer months of July, then August into September. So Alan, what about July made you uh, write about? The most, the standout event for me in July of 1972 was the return of Barry Windsor Smith, or just Barry Smith as he was known then, as the artist uh, of Conan the Barbarian from Marvel. He'd only been gone for two months, but it was, so it was like his first farewell to the character. They ended up being multiple farewells but yeah he had he had left the book after issue 15 and then after doing some he did some doctor strange and marvel premiere did some avengers issues and then it, I apparently decided he, he was happier doing conan so he came back issue number 19 has one of my very favorite um, barry windsor smith covers it's it's actually right smack dab in the middle of the banner header of my blog right now. It's just a just a gorgeous, gorgeous cover. It's also the first issue, this is 19, is, is the first issue of the Hyrcanian War epic, also known as the War of the Terran. How long epic. did that run? It runs through, you would ask me that. I'm <laughs> <laughs> I want to say it runs through like issue 26, but, okay. but, but Windsor Smith does not draw the whole thing. Roy Thomas writes it all. Windsor Smith draws it up through issue 24, which I believe is the Song of Red Sonia. And I'm, I'm kind of working from memory here, so I may get a number or two wrong. And then uh, John Bushima comes on as the new regular artist for the book and does the last two chapters. And of course, it's such a dramatic <laughs> shift in, uh, in style. Um, I'm still sort of reeling from it almost 50 years later, <laughs> but, uh, but at any rate, it's a, it's a, a really excellent storyline. Like among other things, it is the storyline that introduces Red Sonia to, to Conan comics. And, um, so it's, it's a big deal for that. And that's of course that event is a bit later in the year and we'll cover it in more detail then, but yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really strong, strong, uh, serial. You know, you're right about the cover because I'm looking at the cover now and there was quite a few comic books that came out, a lot of comic books that came out in July of that year, but it really does stand out as a comic book cover. It's very different and not of the vein that you would see in a normal comic book. Right. Cover. It looks very the fantasy. Colors. Yes, yes. The colors is very not typically comic book colors. There's a lot of pinks in the background. And it's a very, it's more of a fantasy, but high fantasy, not just right you know, fake fantasy. And <laughs> yeah, and at this time, Conan, I think was a monthly book. And it was a, a title that Roy Thomas wanted to do. And mm -hmm. Stanley was like, go ahead, I have enough confidence in you to do it. 
So go ahead and, and go with it. This fits into Marvel's really jump into publications because our output, because during the Silver Age, this, most of the 60s, they were really limited to the amount of comic books they could put out each month because they were tied right. to a DC's distribution. Right. And then in, like, in the late 60s, early 70s, they got a new distribution system going on. Right. And basically by this time, 1972 started flooding the market every month with comic books. Yes. This yes. month- of- it, it becomes a deluge. Marvel really, really just literally floods the market. Yes. Uh, <laughs> for this, this month, year. for this month in July, it's interesting that Marvel had 24 titles that came out, which is a lot for the publisher, but six of those were Westerns. It just shows you how popular uh, yeah. Westerns were at one time that Marvel right. could make, you know, a third of their lineup Western mm-hmm. comic books. Absolutely. And they ran a lot of reprint material, but it wasn't all reprint material. They were still producing new, you know, new Western stories. And weird Western stories like Gunhawks, yeah. which was a uh, strange comic book that only lasted right. for a few years. And Millie the Model, which most fans don't really know about uh, anymore. At this time, it came out with uh, issue 198. It would go on for a little bit longer. And it was Marvel's longest running title with 198 issues, which makes it, you know, had a good hefty run. I mean, it went all the way from the end of the Golden Age all the way straight through the 60s. And unfortunately, Marvel has not really put out a lot of their titles like Millie and Romance comic books from way back then, which is unfortunate because they had a lot of good creators involved like Stan Goldberg. Right. That type of thing. And Margie, it's you know, speaking of Millie the Model and that type of thing, Marvel is still trying to do their their riff of uh, Archie Comics with their Chili and Harvey <laughs> title. If you right. look if you looked real close and you squint your eye, you would swear it was like, I'm sorry, an Archie comic book. But no, it was <laughs> it was it was Marvel not too successful imitating their Archie Comics line. Sure. And um, DC had been doing something similar. They they might have, have like have bowed out by now or they were about, I, I want to say 1972 was the year that they threw in the towel, but like Swing with Scooter and uh, I think it was called Leave it to Binky. Yes. And and some um, some titles like that, that that had been around for a while, but that they also consciously use a trade dress that echoed uh, Archie Comics. I, there was an interview with Joe Orlando and comic book artist back at the end of the 90s, I want to say, where um, he was asked about that. It was like, yeah, they Archie threatened to sue. Like, yeah, what? They're going to like copyright the colors red and blue. <laughs> right. <laughs> but at any rate, eventually, at, you know, they, they all basically eventually gave up. When I say all, Marvel and DC gave up and just said, okay, we're leaving that market to Archie. They've, they, they've got that. We're going to stop trying to compete with and, you know, once upon a time, Westerns was a very popular genre. So were romance comics. And Marvel, again, like most publishers, do not archive their romance comics. They just kind of like kick them under the rug, like, you know, the little stepchild that nobody wants to talk about. And I noticed that one of their comics that they really should have archived is called uh, Our Love Story 19, which has mm-hmm. a cover by Gene Colan. Right. Well, you you know you remember from superhero stuff like Daredevil sure. and Tomb of Dracula, right? And, and it's like, why are you not archiving this? This is you know 
good history. Sure. They're, they're best artists. Yeah. Their best artists worked worked on the romance books. Um, Romita Bushema, Jim yes. Steranko did a uh, did a romance story that's just a knockout. And it gives fans an opportunity to see these artists outside of the normal right. superhero stuff. And as I was looking at this, I'm going, oh, this is a Gene Collin cover. I did a little more research under the hood. And this was one of two Robert Kaniger's <laughs> right. Marvel stories. I was like, right. wow, what a trivia question that pulled <laughs> on somebody that he left DC for a hot second, went yeah. to Marvel, wrote this one romance story in Our Love Story 19, and then also wrote an issue of Iron Man called right. Week for a Lost Nightmare. Right. And then on top of that, you have the artist, which was uh, Chris Schaffenberger, who did Lois Lane for nearly 10 years. And he was fired in, in uh, 1970 for trying to help organize artists for right. better working conditions. Yeah. He's, I, I've re reportedly, he was like the one artist. I mean, there were like writers like Gardner Fox and Arnold Drake and others who were pushing for benefits yes. and basically ended up losing their gigs. And I believe Schaffenberger was like the the one artist, or at least the one prominent artist who was involved in that effort. Yeah, he, he went back to D.C. in 72 after his short stint in uh, Marvel and some freelancing. And then Kaniger, after writing those two issues for Marvel, went back to D.C. and became the writer and editor with Wonder Woman 211. Right, right. So I was like, wow. And have you uh, have you have you ever read? I haven't read the the romance story. I have to say, but I I have read the Iron Man story. Have you ever read it? No, I was looking at it. I didn't have a chance, and I'm like, I need to okay. read this. And I was going to do a a small segment on it and talk about it sometime in the future for the podcast itself. Oh, no, okay. I, I haven't okay, read well, it. Yet. Okay, well, I can. Yeah, I was going to like read like the most the best dialogue from that issue. But if you're going to do a segment on it, maybe we'll save that. Okay. Uh, <laughs> There's another good publisher out there who was around, which was Gold Key, which I, I found interesting. But Gold Key, which is a lot for the era, put out 30 titles. And that's like, wow, that's that's like an insane amount of titles from not even yeah. a major pub, not even a major publisher. And all of their right. all of their properties were licensed. They had things like Twilight yeah. Zone, Bugs Bunny, Woody Woodpecker. They had the whole Disney Right. Uh, license and it must have been profitable for them because they they did it for for quite a while yeah and, and when they had had yeah they had had you know things that were like in-house titles like magnus robot fighter and you know solar man of the atom and those and other things that ended up you know being i guess sold or licensed or whatever to valiant decades later yes but yeah for, for, for whatever reason by this point yeah they were pretty much down to to just license titles. I think after a while, they come out with some new stuff like um, Dagar the Invincible. Yes, I remember Dagar. Sword, Sword and Sorcery Wave. And um, I want to say that there's another, there's a, like an occult hero whose name escapes me right now. I'll think of it. Yeah, I can't remember. I've got but, another question for you, Alan. Sure. Are you a Batman fan? I am a Batman fan. Because you didn't cover an iconic Batman that came out this, that month, which was 244, which is the day right. lives again. Right, right. I'm like, Alan, how could you not cover this? <laughs> well, if you well, if you'll remember, if you if you'll remember, Ron, I did cover the first episode of the storyline, Batman 242. You did a, a couple a couple of segments back, and I just you know I could talk I could talk about every single ep episode of that serial. You know, it's all great, but 
I just I was I was refraining. But yes, uh, it's a it's a great story, great issue. Um, and it had Neil Adams and Danny yes. O'Neill teaming up, and Neil Adams right. passed away not too long ago. And this yes. cover is such a striking Batman cover because right. there's uh, Roz, which is one of his arch enemies, standing over Batman, holding mm-hmm. Batman's costume, and then there's Batman. But I didn't realize he had such quite a hairy chest, but that's yes. okay. Wearing his uh, Batman cowl, and that's it. And the bottom is like the demon lives again, right? And it's like, wow, that that was such a strikingly different yeah. uh, Batman comic uh, cover and, for the time. And and I think he got some some pushback. Neil Adams got some pushback from um, I don't know if it was from editor Julia Schwartz or somebody else, you know, higher up at DC about. Batman having a hairy chest and also Batman having nipples. You know, I do not. I have a small picture here of the, <laughs> of the, of the uh, cover, so I do not see the bat nipples, which yeah, actually became like <laughs> that. Actually, became one of the movies where they were complaining about. I think it was maybe the George Clooney movie where they were talking. Well, about yeah. Well, I mean, it's one thing to have nipples when you're in on your costume. <laughs> it's another thing to have nipples on your body. <laughs> but yeah, all of the, bare, but, you, but if you notice like, you know, most of the bare chested, you know, heroes, you know, uh, have no hair on their chest. No, they're not. And they're generally, you know, at least in this era, they're not drawn as having nipples. Is there anything <laughs> else about July that need to cover this time around? I, I will mention one other book, which just sort of caught my eye as I was uh, thinking about this podcast and that is, it's another sword and sorcery comic, sort of. Wonder Woman 202. I don't know if you're familiar with this one. This was the next to last of the, of the new Wonder Woman run. The run where Diana Prince had lost her superpowers. That's and, true. And did martial arts. Uh, her mentor was the... Um, the I Ching. The, yeah, I Ching. I Ching, um, I Ching. You say tomato. Wait, I, say I say tomato. tomato. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, this is just a crazy, crazy comic. It guest stars Catwoman, who at that point was not appearing on any sort of regular basis anywhere, and especially not in the Batman titles. It also guest stars Fafford and the Gray Mauser, a pair of sword and sorcery fiction uh, heroes created by Fritz Lieber, who a couple of months later, or maybe more than a couple of months, but soon would be getting their their own comic book from DC in an effort to, you know, kind of ride some ride Conan's coattails to an extent. And then, if that's not crazy enough, the script is by Samuel R. Delaney, who is an award winning science fiction author. One. I think multiple Hugo and Nebula yes. awards, and just the idea he and he did like for whatever reason I think because because he he knew Denny O'Neill socially and Denny O'Neill had become the editor of the book. He did a couple of scripts for Wonder Woman, including this one. So it's a, and it's also it's got very very nice uh, art by Dick Giordano. So that's a, that's an unusual book that I remember fondly, and I'm looking forward to writing about in a few weeks. So that takes us to August of the year and you did not mention commandy this was the first issue of commandy <laughs> of a uh, jack kirby yeah title. and i'm yeah. getting to wonder if you really like jack kirby at all anymore it's just- I, I i i love jack kirby but what i love most of all about jack kirby in this era is is the fourth world the the trilogy of forever people and new gods and mr miracle and two of those books had their last issue in the month of August. 
the same month that that Commandy debuts. And I, I guess for me, the the loss of I, I do feel like the fourth world was was Kirby at his peak. And as much good stuff as he did after August 1972, that's it's it's a loss that we didn't get that he didn't get to complete the fourth world yes. when he was at the peak of his powers that DC pulled the plug on him. And um and I have to confess, I never really got into Commandy. I bought the first issue and thought, yeah, I like Planet of the Apes, but this is just a Planet of the Apes knockoff. Yeah, and it's 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 not what I wanted from Jack Kirby at that point. So I I, I only bought that first issue of Commandy. I, I didn't buy any later issues. Demon I bought. Demon, which I believe started in in June, but that was partly because it was a like a horror hero book yes. and I, was, I was into that genre generally it was also um it, it tied into the, the king arthur legend which was you know one of my it still is one of my major interests so yeah it has merlin in it i'm, I'm, I'm gonna stick with that <laughs> i actually i have to i just read commandy earlier this year the first whole run of it the first tennis like right off the bat and then on and off i finished it what I liked about Commandy is that Jack Kirby was really just throwing stuff all out there, all kinds of crazy stuff. He never really knew what the next issue was actually going to bring. And right. That's what I liked about the series. Right. And later on, I can't really say too much about it because he was replaced as a writer. And I, again, like you, I don't think they really gave Jack Kirby the necessary support he needed. Right. To, you know, if he had perhaps a better editor, a little more promotion, a little more, I don't know, these, these titles could have lasted a lot longer and Kirby could have had a long run at DC. Yeah. So, yes, you said Mr. Miracle also ended at this time. Did that end at a complete storyline or were we left well, dangling? Right. Yeah. Mr. Miracle actually continued for another year. It just it was no longer part. Okay. It was no longer carrying. It was no longer carrying the fourth world storyline. Gotcha. It's just it's it's sort of like Kirby kind of gave it a lobotomy. Is is the best way I, I have of, of describing it. Yeah, he had just done uh, issue nine, which I believe we talked about, which was like you know the origin of, of Mister Miracle, basically how he escaped yes. from apocalypse, which is like one of the hype, you know, one of the the greatest Jack Kirby comics ever. And then like two issues later. Basically, Apocalypse is gone, Eugenesis. I mean, all of that material isn't even referred to again until the 18th issue, which I don't think comes along until like late 1973, because it was a bi-monthly book. And that's where Mr. Miracle and Big Barda get married. And Dark Side, High Father, Granny Goodness, everybody shows up to uh, to crash the wedding, basically. So, but that's, that's, that's well in the future, but so yeah, it, it continued, but it was like, I actually stopped buying it. I stopped buying it, I believe after issue 11 and then didn't pick it up again until 18. Cause it was like, oh, you know, they're back. Well, they were back for like one issue and then, right. it, was, then it was over. <laughs> so what else was exciting about this particular month? Okay. A couple of things. Also at DC, uh, Swamp Thing got started. Lynn Ween, writer and uh, artist Bernie Wrightson had done a short story called Swamp Thing or House of Secrets about a year and a half earlier in 1971, which had been incredibly popular. And almost as soon as the sales figures started coming in on that issue of House of Secrets, DC was 
after Wayne and Wrightson to continue the character as a series, but they couldn't really see any way to do that. You know, it was a, it was done as a one-off story. They told the story, it ended, but then finally some, uh, one of them had the idea. It's like, well, we could just sort of kind of like reinvent the concept. We don't have to do it as a, in a Victorian setting and it doesn't have to be the same backstory for the character. We don't even have to design the character exactly the same. So they came up with, with a revised contemporary version of the same, you know, man gets turned into swamp monster concept and that became the basis of the series that is obviously still one of the best remembered or best known characters to come out of this particular era uh, of comic books you know in this very first issue the whole core foundation of swamp thing basically gets introduced you get matt cable right you get anton arcane you get the unmen you get all these these you know characters that just play out over the years. And sure. For the, for the time, Swamp Thing was a very different comic book. It was more of a horror comic book, like almost like in the old EC Comics fame, without all the blood and gore. Right. And it's gone. No, just like a continuing character, but going through what you would call like you know classical gothic horror you know, tropes and, and settings with you know like a. a like up with a Frankenstein type story and a werewolf type story and uh, and others and, and and eventually he meets Batman so it's like oh okay yeah you yes. can do that too <laughs> and then later on a couple of years later when they revive the title he actually goes off into space for a few issues yeah oh. yeah <laughs> oh. and again we had so many titles that came out during this month that Swamp Thing actually stand out it right. did it did stand out because it had a cover that was unlike any of the any of the other spooky anthologies sure. because at the time dc was doing secrets of sinister house unexpected house of mystery house of secrets they had quite a few of the little uh you know spooky titles but the swamp thing with him rising out of the swamp is a really eye-catching title and cover yeah. even yeah. the logo looks really good i mean the logo itself takes up a whole almost a whole third of the uh the cover itself right right it's a, yeah it's a, it's a very 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 strong cover and so, is there anything else you liked about, oh, you know what? Yeah, you liked Avengers 105. Right. Um, that's the beginning of, of the run by writer Steve Englehart, which is still probably my, if not my, my favorite run on, of Avengers of all time. It's, it's, it's really right up there. It's, what's, it's the run that's closest to my heart, I guess <laughs> I would say. And just... To help listeners maybe kind of pinpoint, okay, Steve Englehart, why did he write? What was going on? Well, among other highlights of the run would be the Avengers Defenders War, which was a crossover between the Avengers and Defenders comics that ran like all through the summer of 1973. Um, he was a writer of Defenders was, at the time also, correct? Yes, yes, he did both. I, I um, think he actually, I liked his run. To defend, did he write Defenders quite a while? Not all that long, really. I think he wrote it for 11 or 12 issues. Well, that he, seemed to... he, le he left it very soon after the Avengers Defenders War concluded. And then Lynn Wein wrote it for a while. And then Steve Gerber came on for a, lo for a long run. Okay. Yeah, because I remember reading the uh, Inkleheart Defenders, I think, early in the year also. And it seemed to right. actually stand out and be kind of a unique run of the Marvel's only non-hero team. <laughs> right, were, right, right. They were never really a superhero team like the Avengers they were just a bunch of sure. people that just kind of came together and fought battles and it had a 
What would you right. a revolving door of characters? Any anybody could be a defender, but it was but it was uh, Engelhardt in Defenders that sort of kind of set that tension that uh, Gerber and others would play off of. You know, for years where it was like you had characters like Namor, the Submariner, saying we are not a team, and then you had Valkyrie uh, or Nighthawk saying, "Yeah, we're a team." You know, we're, you know, this is this is a real thing. This is a team. So they couldn't even decide amongst themselves how much of a team it was. But that's part of what made it fun uh, and sort of an emblematic series of the of the era i think because the defenders actually started off as uh characters teaming up in their own books like uh i think you know an incredible hulk and then there was a dr strange i think he showed up in submariner's book and then they had a a small small run in marvel feature which was so popular yeah they got spun off into their own series right and to replace them was a (laughs) ant-man run yeah six and it was kind of Ant-Man slash Hank Kim, but it was more of a take on the Incredible Shrinking Man movie. And it was a very right. weird s- storyline. It went on for yeah. quite a while. A- at one time, Wasp got turned into this evil, actually wasp-looking <laughs> creature for a few yeah. issues. And I I can't remember exactly who wrote, I should wrote it down, but it was like, wow, this is kind of a, a different take. It was more of a take on... Hank Pym than it was actually on Ant-Man. Itself. Right. But I just, I remember I read that last year and I'm going, this is kind of different. Yeah. Uh, and it's, and it's funny because it's like, you know, there had been such a big thing about Hank Pym giving up being Goliath and becoming Yellow Jacket, like in 1960, late 1968, whenever it was. And then it was all of a sudden he's Ant-Man again. And that seemed to come about because my impression is that Neil Adams wanted to draw Ant-Man taking a, a fantastic voyage through the body of the vision in his first issue of, of Avengers issue 93. And Roy Thomas like, well, sure. Yeah. Go I mean, he's it. yellow jacket. He's yellow jacket now, but we'll just say that. Yeah. He just decided to put on the Ant-Man suit for some reason and, um, and, and, and ride the ants again for all time's sake. And then, and then he, he sticks with it <laughs> after that for at least another couple of years. And then I don't know. I, it's very confusing to follow the uh, the shifts of Henry Pym's super identities. Yeah, I, I, I agree on that. And Englehart, back to the Avengers, yeah. that was a four-year run, which was quite a long Wait, time. Yes, yeah. Where and a I, lot of iconic stuff actually sure. happened. The, the Celestial Madonna saga, the character centered on the character Mantis sort of there's a, an arc with the, the swordsman who's Mantis's lover uh, and his kind of a redemption arc and there's the whole business where they discover that the vision's android body was originally belonged to the human torch from the 40s uh, the android human torch and then like towards the end of the run Engelhart shakes up the roster a bit he has the beast come in uh, Hellcat moon dragon and it's also we have at the end of the run, we have some of the earliest superhero work by a guy named George Perez. Oh, yeah, uh, I remember. Whom we, whom, we, whom we lost recently. Yes. But, uh, who would, be, of course, become, you know, he was probably as best known for his work on the Avengers as really anything else except maybe, you know, Titans and Crisis on Infinite Earths. Earth. But that's that's where he started at the end, towards the end of this run that begins with Stephen Goldhart with issue 105. Did you do you think Steve Inglehart with the uh, introduction of, of the uh, Celestial Madonna and Moon Dragon? Do you think he was making a greater emphasis on including 
women in the Marvel teams and to the point of making them actually as strong as the male heroes. Uh, I think I think that was certainly something he was trying to do. He writes, I believe, in his introduction, the Marvel Masterworks volume that that includes his first issues that, you know, he opened his very first, the splash page of his first story uh, in 105 is Wanda Maximoff, the Scarlet Witch. Basically, it's centered on her and she's basically just dressing down all the male Avengers for not doing what she thinks they ought to be doing. So it was, that was sort of like, his kind of throwing down the gauntlet or whatever else it's like you know we're going i'm you know scarlet witch has been sort of a a weak character she's not going to be that anymore she's she's equal to the guys and i think that that's something an approach that he took with valkyrie and defenders even with a character who on the surface is sort of rather silly like uh like hellcat i think he was very interested in making the women characters stronger. You can look, and again, it's one of those things we've talked about in earlier earlier segments where you can look at it now and say, oh, you know, that's, that's, re- that's really kind of sexist. I mean, that's dated. I mean, that's, you know, there's stuff that makes you wince in a Steve Englehart book or uh, any of these writers who were writing at the time, but it's in the context of the time, <laughs> it was yes. progress. It was, it was progress. Yes, it was progress from what it, what we had been seeing just a couple of years before, you know, from Stan Lee or Roy Thomas or uh, anybody else who was writing comics. Even the, the Wonder Woman was a on the DC side was a reflection sure. of that when they depowered sure. Wonder Woman, they actually made her a stronger character who didn't have to rely on superpowers, but relied on her wit and her natural strength and her intelligence, which is kind of like a way that seemed to be going through both Marvel and DC because also at the same time. Marvel was starting to try to actively engage more female readers because we were talking right. about the cat. Right. The cat came out. Yes. A short-lived comic book. And she was a uh, Greer Grant Nelson was the cat who shortly after became Tigra. And then you're talking about Hellcat, who was Patsy Walker, who has right. a long history in the <laughs> right. in Marvel, who right. went back to the 60s and the 50s as a, as a character connected with Millie the model. Yes. But I believe the cat was written by Linda Fight, uh, Marie Severin, mm-hmm. who was, I think, pretty much the only woman artist that was regularly yes. doing work in the 60s. And we were talking before, you know, it's good to give Stan Lee his credit. It's good to give Steve Ditko more credit. It's good to give Jack Kirby credit. And these people should get the credit. But the Foundation of Marvel is also built on other characters like Marie Severin, who did such tremendous work throughout the 60s and was really well liked by I know Stan Lee, for example. Sure. And she she deserves her her time in the spotlight also. Absolutely. And yeah, I I didn't buy the claws of the cat. And I cannot really, 50 years later, I, I'm not really sure why, because I, I liked Marie Severin and I liked Wally Wood, who who inked the book. Yes. And uh and and contributed a lot to it. So I, you know, I don't and I was, yeah, I was I was reading Call the Conqueror, the sword and sorcery book that Marie Severn was doing with her brother John at this time, with John inking her pencils, uh, which is just you know great, great stuff. So I don't know why. I just I hate to think that it was just like oh you know girls, <laughs> right? <laughs> but I mean, I I was I was uh, I was only fifteen, and uh, I and I had I had growth you know to I had you know, growth in my future. There were there were three books that came out 
I think, they, I think they all debuted in August. Yeah, and um, the other one that I, I remember offhand was Shadow the Sea Devil. She Shadow Devil, the Sea Devil. Which is by I, Carol I by Stooling and Steve Gerber. Yes. The pencils uh-huh. with George Tuska, and that didn't last very long, but Shannon ended up actually becoming a major character. Right, being connected right. With, with Kazar. Do you remember what the last one was? I think there was like three of them. Or maybe Night four. Nurse. Night, Night Nurse. Nurse. Yes. How did I forget about Night Nurse? <laughs> You know, I was I was doing another podcast and I was talking about Linda Carter, right? Student nurse, and I'm like, yes, that's the night nurse. One day she becomes night nurse, and it's yeah. If you look at I, it in, in this concept, it's kind. And before I, I stop, it's it's written by Jean Thomas, who's Roy Thomas's wife at the time, right? And it was their attempt to get more female writers, thinking more female writers and artists will get more yeah. female. But it was really a good it, idea. It was a good idea. And you look at Night Nurse and it's like, ooh, this is kind of campy. And but mm. you got to give Marvel credit for at least trying. trying. Yeah, I agree. I, I don't know how I missed Night Nurse because it's just and even the name of it, Night Nurse, is so, so cool. And again, Night Nurse continues on to this day. It was a big feature in the uh, the Daredevil and uh, other Marvel shows with Netflix. So right, right. I, yeah, I totally forgot about Night Night Nurse. Another great yeah, and, concept. And the character that um, that Rachel McAdams plays in the uh, the Marvel Doctor Strange movies is based on one of the other Night Nurses. There's like three. Linda Carter's the main one, but there's like three Night Nurses, and Christine Palmer, I think, is the name. Yes, is is, is one of the three. So so yes, the Night Nurse lives on. In the Marvel Netflix series, the character played by Rosario Dawson, and then also in the character played by Rachel McAdams in the gotcha. Marvel movies. You have anything else to say about this particular month? I I don't. I think I think we've covered August. You know, September has one of my two favorite Bronze Age Amazing Spider-Man <laughs> covers. Yeah, it's so crazy. Yeah. There's a web in the so background. Crazy. There's a web in the background. It's this big circle. And there's Aunt May holding a gun, shaking, and there's Spider-Man on the wall with the spider sense going off, and Doc X, Doc Ock is on the ground, just all crazed and whatever. And she's yeah, telling just stop. Nuts. You just better stop, or I'm gonna shoot you. And <laughs> you know, recently in in oh, this year, Marvel actually brought up the Aunt May Dr. Octopus relationship because even going to the Silver Age, right. Dr. Octopus and Aunt May. Dr. Octopus was a character that could do no wrong in her right. eyes. And, right. You know, and, and they played that up recently when, when Peter Parker was sick and a much more interesting May Parker went to Dr. Octopus right. to look. And you got to see the dynamic where they actually made <laughs> the Silver Age, Bronze Age, Aunt May, right. Dr. Octopus, and still made that whole relationship work and make sense. Made it plausible, yeah, yeah, and it's it's actually a very cool relationship over over the course of the you know six years. My other uh, cover that really gets to me is the one with Aunt May and Doctor Octopus at the altar with her and her bridal veil. And, <laughs> and I don't remember which one that is. Yeah, and, I, I I don't either, but I but I know the one you're talking about. Yeah, there you got all the bad guys in the background, and they're all getting ready to pull guns out of their holsters and everything. It's just I, I, yeah, those are just too zany and very funny covers that I, I really did like. 
But what I, did you I'm tempted what, to say that that's when I that's when I like stopped buying Spider Man for a while, but I'm not, I'm not sure that that's true. <laughs> so what did Maybe. you what did you think about September? I guess the uh, the the single standout for me. I mean, there's all every month. There's always interesting things, and I will find at least I will be um, writing about at least four comics, and probably more than that. But just in terms of uh, just really it standing out from the crowd or historical significance, I guess I could say. The 11th issue of Fear, or as it says on the cover, Adventure into Fear, which uh, had been an anthology book, basically reprinting Marvel sort of fantasy, light horror stories from the 50s and early 60s. With issue 10, it had become the home of the Man-Thing feature. We talked about Man-Thing in an earlier segment. What came um, first, the, Swamp Thing or the Man Thing, the chicken or the egg? Uh, that's that's a good question. I, I'm tempted to say the heat came first. <laughs> that's um, true. But it's because it's like neither one of them was the first comic book Swamp Monster. They all kind of go back to Theodore Sturgeon's It, which is a, a short story. But then the heat was the was the original comic book Swamp Monster. But as he far, far in, as as far as which in, came first. In, he appeared in Airboy a lot of um, yes, heat yes. stuff. And I think he, he maybe even had his own title. I can't remember. But yes, now we're back to the you know this era here. So which one came first, Swamp Thing or Man Thing? Man Thing. Man Thing. Man Thing came first. Yeah, there's just really no question of that. But I will be writing a sort of a chronology uh, as sort of as a special feature when I write my post on Swamp Thing 1 in in. A, it's August, right? I've already lost track of yes. what month that was. That was. So, um, yeah, I'm going to be going into some detail about that. So if you're interested in this, because it is complicated. It's complicated in part by the fact that that Swamp Thing has like, you know, two origins because there's the original short story and then there's the revised version uh, that's in the series. Lynn Wein wrote an early Man-Thing story before he wrote the second Swamp Thing story. Jerry Conway, who wrote the first Man Thing story, and Lynn Wein, who wrote the first Swamp Thing story, were roommates at the time they wrote those stories. That I did not so know. It's just, it's, it's, it's really interesting. But, but with Fear 11, Man Thing gets his definitive writer, Steve Gerber, whom at this point I think probably had not done anything else besides co-write those issues of Shanna the She-Devil. And of course, that had just started. So he was just getting it, just getting started. But Man Thing would be the character next to, I think, Howard the Duck that he would be most closely associated with over his career at Marvel and just tremendous run, uh, full of memorable stories. Uh, it, of course, eventually did spin off Howard the Duck. I'll, I'll be I'll be writing a lot about Man Thing over the next three or four years. But I'll just put it that way. So at any rate, that's that's the standout for me. You know, I was looking at it. Marvel had 27 titles mm-hmm. that month, and DC had 29 titles that came out. And while I was going over this, what struck me odd is that DC, almost half of the titles for the month was either spooky or weird themed, either the whole yeah. comic book, yeah, like Tales of the Unexpected, Weird Mystery, Witching Hour, Weird War Tales, or the, the, the cover itself had a really right. spooky cover, like even the Teen Titans had 42, had this, this skull coming out of the water at them. Even Korak, son of uh, Tarzan, has a spooky theme, and mm-hmm. that one passed me up. 
but just, I just found it interesting that DC was really delving into the let's make things more spooky and weird, like Batman and Daredevil in the uh, Raven the Bold one of four. I just found that really like, well, that's kind of odd that they did that. And still, they still had going out that month, they still had three or four romances, which I, I found right. odd. Romances right. were still going strong at this time. You had yeah. Falling in Love, which was in. 138 young romance was at 188 and just to think of a a romance title going on that long just seems like wow for me you have to think of the um that the the mystery books as they call them you know code approved horror must have been like selling better than anything else because they did you can go back a couple of months and look at like forever people nine which i think came out in in april or may and it it has a cover that the forever people don't show up except as floating heads but it's like it's a frankenstein monster themed cover and then of course carmine infantino asked jack kirby to come up with a monster hero and that's how we got the demon okay and and it did seem like they would just slap the word weird on anything uh, you know, so we have weird Western tales, weird war tale. When the specter becomes the, or it may actually be before that, but eventually uh, adventure comics becomes weird adventure comics for a while. Yes. And then it's uh, Plop, the humor book, is subtitled The Magazine of Weird Humor. And I think probably would have just simply been called weird humor if, right. if they hadn't had the brilliant idea to call it plot. At least you I know, think it was brilliant. You're talking about adventure comics. And for many years, it was the home to the Legion of Superheroes for most of the 60s. And then Supergirl took over the slot. But in this month, Supergirl got spun off to her own title. And it only lasted like maybe 10 issues, which I thought was like really right. weird. It was yeah. really super strong in the adventure comics. Strong right. enough to, to, you know, let's just give her her own title. And then the title just like flamed out after about 10 or 11 issues. And I, I, I guess I should have done more research, but I'm not <laughs> sure, you know, if it had completely changed in creative talent or whatever. But right. Supergirl was so strong for a while there. And she really didn't get, I don't think she really ever got a good showing where she was actually successful until long after Crisis. I don't right. Think ever yeah, that's find her her place in the Superman mythos. Yeah, it's yeah. I think it was one of those things. It's like she had a, a niche in the Silver Age, and then it, like we sort of as taste changed, moving into the Bronze Age, DC really wasn't sure how to position her, or how to how to deal with her, and of course, eventually, it ended up deciding at the end of the Bronze Age just to kill her off. Well, let's just kill her off. Um, but it's but it's uh, but she certainly has come back in a big way. The, the other uh, company that I wanted to talk about, because I tried to talk about some of the right other ones outside of the big ones, even though and I, I wish somebody would buy the rights to some of these older publishers and, and actually archive these comic books to make them available to a new audience, because I think some of the stories remain timeless, such as in the case of Harvey Comics, which was a major publisher back up into the Golden Age to the Silver Age until the middle of the end of the Bronze Age, really about 85, 86. And they did right. a lot of kit. They were like the, they were the true kids comic publisher where Archie was a little more 10, 11 ish. These were really kids comics. And during this time period, they were putting out about 18 comics a month. Yeah. yeah. And as the years gone would go through into the mid seventies and late seventies, they would actually really shoot up the amount of titles that they would put out. Right. But you get things like 
Richie Rich here and Casper. <laughs> and yeah, five of the five of the titles they had were 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 Casper related. And there was four right. Richie Rich, and nobody even hears a sad sack anymore. And I grew right, up right. with somebody. I used to love to read sad sack and okay and spooky spook house and the haunted house and all these these strange comments. And yeah. It's too I, bad they don't have them anymore. Sure. I, I have to confess, I never bought or read a single Harvey comic in my life. <laughs> really? But, but I mean, which is not not to knock them. I, I think it's just by the time that I started, you know, reading. You had actually outgrown them. Seriously. Yeah. I I, I, I mean, before, when I was eight years old and I started like with Superman and Justice League and Green Lantern. And I think I had it in my head at that point that those were little kids comics. So like if I had had like, you know, an older brother or sister, you know, or if I had had parents who just, you know, bought me comics when I was five years old or something and had bought them, I, I would probably have fond memories of them. But that that didn't happen. I didn't get comics really until I started buying them myself. Yeah, I did not buy a lot of Harvey. I think I got I had them given to me over time. And that's how I became a fan of the Harvey comics. Right. But I don't even know who owns, you know, all the rights to I'm, all these yeah, I'm characters. Not sure. I'm and, not sure. Have to look it up. It's it's too bad because like I said, these these are some great characters that should be around more. It's too bad they can't find a place for them. So that's me rambling on about September. <laughs> Is there anything else you want to talk about September before we wrap I, this I, up? I think I think we've think we've covered it. I think we did too. Okay, Alan, we're gonna wrap this up. I'm going to thank you again for another well-rounded episode. We'll pick it up again with the rest of the year. Thank you so much for being part of the podcast this round. This time around, I think it was very informative and his uh, blog will be at the show notes. So again, Alan, thanks for, thank you for coming on. Thanks, Ron. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you stick around for future episodes. If you like this podcast, please spread the word. Recommend it to comic fans. With this episode, I've added a link tree to the show notes, allowing you easy access to the comic fan podcast, platforms, and social media accounts. Please follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. I want the podcast to grow and introduce fans to a different way of covering comic books. Again, thanks so much for listening. See you next time.